Right, good morning, church family. You know, we've been talking for a number of weeks about blessings, and I uh, just want to reiterate what Miss Marie said there. If you want your children, if you want your grandchildren to be blessed, sign them up for Summer Block Party this year. I've seen some of the, the work that's gone on behind the scenes, and, and I can tell you that uh, for those who participate in it, there is going to be a blessing. And uh, as we think about blessings, I know for many of you, uh, the school year ended uh, earlier this week. And so I just, yeah, I, I thought I heard somebody started to clap over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I do. Just um, a, a special word of appreciation to the teachers, the administrators, uh, the students, the parents on, on the completion of what I know was a particularly challenging year. And so if, if you're sitting next to a teacher right now, maybe you could give them a pat on the back or if you're sitting next to a student, well, well done, well done. And uh, you, you are to be commended for your perseverance, for keeping your sanity, for hanging in there. Uh, and uh, here's to a great summer, right? Well, uh, before we begin the message, I'd like to extend a, a special welcome to those of you who are our guests. We're so glad that you've joined us. And one of the things I'd like you to know about our church is that we value relationships. So uh, we believe that church is more than just an event you would attend on Sunday morning. We believe that church is a place to belong. Uh, church is a community that God wants us to be a part of, where we as individual members of a larger body, we come and we grow together, we serve one another, we pool our talents and resources together in a way that creates some synergy and allows us to better accomplish the mission of God in the world. And if this is your first time here or you're relatively new, I just want to say that we'd like to get to know you. Uh, for those of you that are here in person, after the service is over, directly through those double doors, there's a large open area. We'll be serving some refreshments there. I hope you'll hang around for a bit, uh, enjoy a, a cup of coffee, a, a muffin, and then stop by our Welcome Center. Uh, I'll make my way there after the service is over. would love to meet you. And uh, whether you're joining us online or in person, we always appreciate it if you take a moment to fill out the Hey, I'm Here card. Uh, you can find that at the bottom of our homepage. You could submit that anytime. Or if you fill it out in the bulletin, you could leave that in the baskets when the service is over. Well, if you've been with us these past three weeks, you know we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Benedictions. Throughout Scripture, we find these short prayers that contain a declaration of blessing from God. Uh, perhaps the most common, the most well-known benediction is the one from Numbers 6. It's the ironic blessing. It goes like this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. It's a beautiful prayer, and, and we find little benedictions like this throughout Scripture uh, frequently, not always, we find them at the conclusion of a New Testament letter. And it's common to hear these various benedictions recited by a minister at the conclusion of a worship service. And one of the goals of this series is that all of us might have a greater understanding of the meaning of these short prayers. When you hear the same thing over and over again, here, here's what I've, I've come to realize. It can be kind of like listening to the safety briefing from the flight attendant before the airplane takes off. 
You know no one's paying attention to that. You look around, the flight attendant starts talking, and people start flipping through their phone. They grab for the Sky Mall. They put their nose in a book. No one's listening. Why? It's because it's stuff we've heard before. And there's a real risk at that, too, with these benedictions, because we often hear them at the end of a service. What can happen is it's like, oh, I'm going to tune that out. That's just white noise because I've heard that before. And, and what happens is we, we miss out on this blessing that God would want to wash over us. And so what we're doing in this series is we're slowing down. And we're going to allow ourselves the time to really process, to digest these words that God would want to speak over us. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to meet me in one of the shortest books of the Bible, the book of Jude. It's the next to last book in the Bible. So if you find Revelation, just, just one before that, okay? And when I say look with me at Jude 24 and 25, I don't mean chapters 24 and 25. I, I mean verse 24 and 25. It's that short. Hopefully you've all made your way there. And follow along with me now as I read our passage for the day. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer and one that is certainly enriched my life these past few weeks as I've meditated on it. And I hope God will cause some of that blessing to spill over onto you as we unpack it this morning. Now, now technically, these two verses would be characterized as a doxology more than a benediction. So what happens in, in, a, in a doxology, praise goes up to God. And in a benediction, really I, more of what we're asking for is for a blessing to come down from God to another person. But it's not uncommon to hear these last two verses of Jude said, pronounced, recited at the conclusion of a worship service, and I think that's because verse 24 is similar to a benediction in that these words bring comfort and encouragement from God to the believer. This prayer is directed to God, we saw, but the twofold promise that's found in verse 24 is intended to strengthen the believer and assure us of God's will for our lives. So let's look together now again at verse 24. How does it start? It says, Now to him who is able. He is the God who is able. He's not the God who might be able. He's not the God who once upon a time was able in the past. He's not the God who one day might be able, will be able at some point in the future. He is the God who right now, in this moment, present tense, is able. He's the God who never overpromises and then underdelivers. He's the God who is able. That means that he has the power, the skill, the ability to go and accomplish whatever he purposes. You know, this is a theme in Scripture, that God is able uh, 2 Corinthians 9, that he's able to make all grace abound to us. In Ephesians 3, he's able to do immeasurably more beyond all we can ask or imagine. 
I think of Romans 16 where it says that he's able to establish us. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the finery furnace who told King David Knebuchadnezzar, he said, oh, oh, oh God, <laughs> oh King, the God who we serve is able to deliver us. Uh, here in Jude 24, we're reminded that our God is able to accomplish two great guarantees on our behalf. We're given these two wonderful assurances that should bring assurance in our life. The verse continues, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This passage should bring great assurance to every Christian because it reminds us that God is standing guard over our lives. He, he's keeping watch over those who are his. That word keep right there is a military term. It means to guard or to watch over. And having served in the infantry for five years, um, I learned a thing or two about keeping guard. Uh, so, so the way this works is, uh, you know, a wise military leader, he knows that his soldiers are going to need rest so they can remain combat effective when the nightfall comes. But he doesn't just tell everyone to bed down at once and catch 40 winks. Because if that were to happen, the unit would be very vulnerable to attack. And so what happens is a, a certain percentage of the unit is designed to keep watch, to guard. Now, those of you who have, have served before know that when you're resting, when you're the one that's supposed to be sleeping, you're counting on the fact that those who are supposed to be keeping watch are going to do what? That they're going to be awake, that they're not going to nod off. And those of you that have served, you know the great challenge in pulling guard duty is after being awake all day, is there's that real tendency to nod off. And so this passage makes me think of Psalm 121, which says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He will keep your life. And so for the Christian, there is one keeping watch who will never nod off, who will never quit his post. He's always watching over us. And, and standing guard in this capacity, God promises that he's able to keep us from stumbling. Well, what exactly does this mean? Well, let's just clear up what it doesn't mean. Stumbling doesn't, it, it, it's not a metaphor for sin. So this verse isn't opening the door to this possibility of, of sinless perfection that we're somehow going to go through life and never sin again. Rather, the word stumble here, it refers to apostasy. So said another way, God is able to keep those who are his from abandoning the faith. True believers will persevere in the faith because God will preserve those who are his. This is guarantee number one, if you're taking notes. God is able to preserve us on earth. He's able to preserve us on earth. Now, why is this a comforting promise? Well, I think it helps to think about the alternative. If God wasn't able to keep us from stumbling, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that we would be responsible for keeping ourselves from stumbling. How would you like that pressure? If it's all up to us, what that means is then, then like every sinful act would be an occasion for doubt. 
And, and instead of going through life with this confidence and assurance that we belong to God, what would happen instead is we would wrestle with worry and fear. And, and I can only imagine that that would be compounded if there was some particular sin that kept tripping us up, one, one that we struggled with again and again. And in those situations, the evil one, whose nickname is the father of lies, he loves nothing more than to come and to bait us into questioning our salvation. That's how he works. And instead of buying into his lies, what we need to do is we need to reflect on this passage and what it's teaching us. Here we're reminded that we're not able to keep ourselves when it doesn't feel like we're persevering in the faith. God is able to keep us. This is something that he does for us. Scripture says that we're not saved on the basis of our work, but on the basis of Christ's work. So the message of Christianity, if you're here and you're brand new to the faith, it's not do, do, do. It's done. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. Now let me ask you this. If, if we can't gain salvation through our own effort, does it make any sense to think that we can somehow maintain it through our own effort? No. Yet, yet sometimes I think there's this tendency uh, to treat the, the Christian life like a high-stakes poker game that we can't afford to enter. Now, hear me out. I realize this kind of like, seems like a crazy analogy, but I, I, I think there's some insight here. See, I, I, I think sometimes there's this tendency to go and to say, oh, what, what, what Jesus does for us is somehow like him taking care of the entry fee. He, he, he fronts us this money that gets us a spot at the table. He handles the buy-in uh, when we believe in him. But after that, he's hands off. And then it's just, it's, it's all up to us to make something of the opportunity. And we better perform well or it's game over. But the Christian life is not like that at all. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, God will finish what he has started in your life. Philippians 1 6 puts it like this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, let's say it together, completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here's what this means. What God initiates, God finishes. If he starts it, he's going to bring it to completion. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you, you can be sure in this fact it's what uh, Romans 8, 29, it's often called the golden chain. You're part of this great, inseparable link because the passage tells us that those who God calls, he also justifies, and those who he justifies, he's going to glorify. One of my favorite places to go hiking around here is Hanging Rock. If you've ever been to Hanging Rock, you know kind of when you reach the top, you can walk out on this pinnacle and there's like a sheer cliff on either side. And if you get too close to the edge, uh, Pastor Sonny will not be visiting you in the hospital. It, it, it will be the funeral home. Uh, so there, there's some great exposure up there. Now, if you're up there with kids, uh, you, you've got two options. You can get to the top and you can kind of say, you know, hey, son, uh, you know, here's my finger. I want you to take your hand and I want you to wrap it around uh, my finger and I want you to, to hold on tight to me while you're up here. Or you can say, uh, so let me, let me have your hand, and you can take your hands, 
your fingers and you can wrap them around his. So instead of asking him to hold on to you, you can hold on to him. Now, now if you're a parent, which option are you going to go with? It's the second one, right? You don't want your child's safety up there to be contingent upon their strength. They're going to be much more secure with you holding on to them. You know, it's the same way with our salvation. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my what? My hand. We're in his hand. And not only that, there's a double guarantee here. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's what? Hand. He has us. He's able to keep those who are his. See, what this means is that our ability to remain faithful in this life, it's not due to our own inner strength. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, we can be confident that we will finish the race of life with our faith. Not, not because of some inner fortitude or just some grit on our part, but because he is able. Those who have true faith will persevere to the end through the divine enablement of a God who is able to keep us. But you know, that's not the only guarantee in this passage, is it? That's not the end of the verse. Let's look again at our passage. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So not only is God able to preserve us on earth, he's also able to present us in heaven. That's guarantee number two. There's a play on words here. The word for present can also be translated make stand, make you stand, which is the opposite of stumble. So the God who is able to keep you from stumbling down here is able to make you stand up there. And, and, and where is he going to present us? Where is he going to make us stand? Well, he's going to present us before the presence of his glory. Now, I realize that we don't often use the word present in the way that it's used in this passage. But if you think of a movie like, I don't know, like Cinderella or The Count of Monte Cristo or any movie where there's a, a king or a queen uh, that's throwing some sort of royal ball, you've probably heard the word present used in this way. So if you think with me, uh, oftentimes before this, you know, the, the individual of honor will enter into the ballroom, you'll probably recall some official of the court saying something along these lines, my lords and ladies, you know, it is my great honor to present to you, and then blah, 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 you know, the Count of Monte Cristo or the Duchess of Monrovia or something like that. And as I reflected on this passage, here's just what's staggering to me. Here's what's astounding. That, that someone who's as unworthy as I am, so, someone who's as undeserving as I am, someone who's just betrayed God in an embarrassing number of times, would one day stand in his presence. I want you, I want you to just think about what that means. This, this is an honorific gesture. So, so the great King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Almighty, it's not that he's going to come and he's going to cause us 
to stoop or to bow or to prostrate ourselves in his presence. He's going to make us stand in his presence. And not only will we stand in his presence, we're told how we'll stand. Our passage tells us that he's able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. And this is, in fact, the only way that sinners could ever stand in the presence of a perfectly holy and righteous God. The Old Testament worshiper had to present a sacrifice to God that was blameless. To be acceptable, it had to be without fault. And I look out at some faces, and I admire so many of you. There's so many wonderful people in our congregation. But you know what? There's, there's not a person in this room who's blameless. There's not one of us here that's without fault. I think even if you're not yet a Christian, we could agree on this, that, there, that there's no person alive who can say, hey, there, I, I've done everything right. I've never done anything wrong. I'm completely without fault. So, so how can blemished people stand blameless before a completely holy God? Well, 1 Peter 1.18 tells us, it says that we're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we stand blameless before God because for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what happens is we can sing with the great hymn, my sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You know, this is a truth worth tucking away. And, and I say that because I think for many of us, there can be just a few things in our life that when we look in the rearview mirror, we just say, man, I'd love to have that one back. Just, just some things that we think about that just makes us want to put our face in the palm of our hands. Some, some things that are painful to relive. And there is some good news here. Because here's what this passage is telling us that we're going to stand blameless before the presence of our Savior. You know what that means? That means that, that he's going to deal with the guilt and the stain of every sin. All of it. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Not only will we be presented blameless before the presence of his glory, our presentation will occur with great joy. Check this out. Not only, it, it, it doesn't say that we're going to be presented with joy, does it? It says what? With what? Help me out. With great joy. Wow. 
We won't just enter into the presence of the King of Kings and be granted some brief audience with the Almighty and then kind of escort it out. The day on which we enter into God's presence is going to be accompanied by exceeding joy. Uh, Psalm 1611 tells us, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we see God face to face, what's going to happen is we're going to enter into fellowship with him. And that eternal delight that's always existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is going to be imparted to us, and we're going to experience the fullness of his joy. And that joy is not just for the Christian. It's not just for the one being presented. That joy, I think, is also for the presenter. Because here's what Hebrews 12.2 tells us, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. What the Bible tells us is that when we become Christians, the, the, the believers are actually God's gift to the Son. So think about that for a moment. If you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're the Father's present to the Son. Uh, my wife and I recently finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia to our son, Ian. And uh, I, I, I'd read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, before, but never the whole series. And I just want to say that C.S. Lewis, he has this gift for telling a really engaging story while at the same time sprinkling in some profound insights. Uh, those of you who are familiar with these stories know that there's, there's one character, one major character, who appears in all seven of the books and it's Aslan the lion. And uh, C.S. Lewis very intentionally creates these parallels between Aslan and Christ. And one of, one of my favorite parts in every book was when Aslan appeared on the pages. And, and through this fantasy, uh, Lewis helps us reflect on the great joy that awaits us when we arrive in heaven. There's this scene that takes place between Lucy and Aslan in the fourth book, Prince Caspian. And I'll just be reading a portion now from chapter 10 of that book. He was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and bearing her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. For a time, she was so happy she did not want to speak. Now, I, I know all that kissing and hugging isn't the most manly analogy. <laughs> but, you know, here's, here's what I like about this fictional scene. I, I, I think... C.S. Lewis is right in inviting us to contemplate the reciprocal nature of the joy that existed there 
between Lucy and Aslan and the joy that is going to exist between us and our Savior on the day that we're presented in the presence of his glory. I don't think it's just going to be some rigid scene with these like wooden bows and curtsies and perfunctory comments and obligatory formalities. I think it's going to be like two old friends meeting again for the first time in decades. I think it's going to be more like the joy that exists when uh, the bride is presented before her groom. I know that, you know, sometimes when we worship through singing in here, there's people that raise their hands, and maybe you've thought to yourself, well, what's up with that? Here's the thing. I suspect that one day, when all of us enter into the presence of his glory, and we are filled with great joy, that all of us are going to get a little carried away, and we're going to be more than just raise our hands. That's my prediction. The God who's able to preserve us on earth is able to present us in heaven. This isn't something we do for ourselves. This is something God does for us. It's the result of his divine, omnipotent, sovereign activity in our lives. And in verse 25, we see our response to God's power at work on our behalf. And that response, if you're taking notes, is praise. Because of these two great guarantees from God, because of what the, the guarantees from God, there should be worship of God. Let's look at verse 25. It says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. There is only one God, and he is worthy of exclusive praise. He does the saving, he does the keeping, he does the presenting, so he alone is worthy of all praise. He gets the glory. Glory is the sum total of his divine perfections. Majesty denotes his greatness and how worthy he is of honor. Dominion and authority are terms that are rather close in meaning. They indicate that God is sovereign in control. The direction of all things is in his hands. And the verse ends by telling us when God should receive glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And the answer to that question is that he is worthy of unending praise, past, present, and future. He was worthy of all praise before all time, before he ever created the heavens and the earth. Before he ever spoke it into existence, God was worthy of all praise because of just the inherent beauties and excellencies and perfections that are, that are true of who he is because of his character, because of his, just who, who he is. We read on and we see that at the same time, God is worthy now. Remember how verse 24 began? Now to him who is able. And here we see in verse 25, it says that he's worthy of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority now. And so I think there's this connection here. No matter what's going on in your life at the moment, no matter the hardship, no matter the suffering, no matter the difficulty, God is worthy of praise right now because he is the God who is able now to keep you and to present you. 
And at the same time, he is worthy of praise forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and worship his holy name. We've seen two great guarantees from God. And here's my hope, that these great assurances from him will cause you to love him more and cause you to trust him more. And as a result of this, I hope that you'll be so moved that you would want to give the only God our Savior your highest praise, that you will want to ascribe to him, that you, your heart will be so stirred by, by what he has revealed that we will ascribe to him the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority that is due him. Our God in heaven, we, we thank you so much for giving us these assurances. And I pray that you will help us to rest in the truth that you have imparted to us through your word. We praise you. We worship you for being a God who is able to keep us from falling away. And as I close as we pray, I think of the one who's heard this message who is not currently being kept by you because they have never placed their trust in you. They've never been saved by you. And if you're here and you know that you're not being kept by God and you might not be presented before the presence of his glory and you want to change that, I'm just going to invite you to say a prayer like this. Uh, what, what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you to take hold of these great assurances for yourself. And the way that you do that is by coming to a place where you would say, God, I believe that you are able. This really is the essence of faith. Believing that God is able to make good on his promises and in Hebrews 7, we're told that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And so you can say a prayer like this. God, I believe that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I recognize that my salvation is not something that I can earn it's something I need to receive. And I thank you, Jesus, for being willing to bear the punishment that I deserved and to impart your perfect righteousness to me. I confess you as my Savior and my Lord, and I want to serve you all of my days. And all God's people said, amen, amen.